Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey, everyone. This is Mark Treichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. I'm here today with JT Blau. JT, how are you doing today? I'm good, Mark. It's great to see you. I've been uh, listening to your podcast for a few months now, and it's been a terrific resource. So I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Well, I appreciate those kind words. And, you know, you and I connected on LinkedIn and you're with the Virginia Credit Union League. And I had recorded a short podcast on my take on action that the NCAA board had taken last week as it relates to the bylaws and member expulsions. And you reached out to me and I know you've been working on blogs and different things and you know this much better than I. So it's great that you could get on so quick and help educate my listeners on what this rule might mean for them. So I appreciate you reaching out so we could get on and record this timely. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to help. And before we jump into that, I want to give the listeners a little bit of your background. So JT serves as the Chief Advocacy Officer for the Virginia Credit Union League, leading the league's advocacy work at the state and federal levels. He also oversees the league's regulatory compliance resources and advocates for credit unions by engaging with both state and federal regulators. He joined the league in June of last year after seven years at all Federal Credit Union in Richmond, Virginia, where he oversaw compliance, HR, BSA, and other areas as VP of Risk Management. JT received an MBA from the University of Richmond in 2013, a JD from the University of Richmond in 2011, and a BA in government from the College of William & Mary in 2008. So thanks again for being available. That's an impressive resume. I know you've got a lot of expertise in this. So again, let's kind of jump right in. So the rules out there, it was proposed, it was required as part of a change in the Federal Credit Union Act, board finalized it. They made some tweaks based on a bunch of the letters that came in. I'm guessing you probably may have contributed to some of those letters and maybe That's potentially right. actually influenced the final rule. And with that, the first question I would have, JT, as it relates to expulsion, is there certain things that you can get expelled for and certain things that you can't, but what are the types of member behavior that would make them potentially subject to expulsion under the rule? Yeah, so this process that is laid out in the final rule is a method by which the board can expel a member for cause. And the final rule does define for cause there. And there's basically three buckets that you can fall into to be for cause. The first is a substantial or repeated violation of the membership agreement of the credit union. The second is a substantial or repeated disruption, including dangerous or abusive behavior to the operations of the credit union. And then the third is fraud, attempted fraud, or conviction of other illegal conduct in relation to the credit union. So if a credit union is thinking about using this new final rule, it's important to understand those buckets and making sure that the member behavior falls into one of those. So a couple things I want to break down here. The first is that substantial or repeated violation of the membership agreement. The keyword here is or. It can be substantial or repeated. So that means you can have one substantial violation or multiple non-substantial violations. 
And an important thing to note about multiple non-substantial violations is the member has to be sent a warning letter. So if they exhibit some conduct or have a violation that the credit union deems is a non-substantial violation of the membership agreement, the credit union has to send them a warning letter. And you have to say, hey, here's your conduct. This is why it's a violation. And if you do this again, you may be eligible for expulsion. So the member has to have some notice there if we're in the bucket of non-substantial violation of the membership agreement. And then the last thing there that board noted in this final rule is that if they exhibit that behavior again to make it repeated, it has to be within two years of them getting that warning letter. So they have this conduct, you send a warning letter, and then within two years, they exhibit it again. That would make it a repeated violation of the membership agreement. Now, like I said, it can also be a substantial violation, and that's just a one-time thing. So that raises the question, what qualifies as substantial? So the board took a lot of feedback from commenters on this issue, and they really chose this to leave this up to the credit union. They recognize a lot of these situations are very fact-dependent, and they didn't feel like prescribing a universal policy to all federal credit unions would be feasible in this situation. What they did do is give two examples of behavior that they would view as not a substantial violation. So the two that they highlighted, the first one was a member failing to keep their account secure. And the example they gave was, for example, writing a pin on the back of their debit card. Credit unions will know what I'm talking about here. A member writes their pin on the back of the card and then loses the card. Someone gets it. They've got the card. They've got the pin. They're ready to go. And they withdraw cash out of that account. In that situation, the board said this is not something that would qualify the member for expulsion under this process. In that case, they would recommend limiting their services. So limiting like access to a debit card. The other situation which the member or the NCUA described in the rule was a member filing bankruptcy or a member being forced out of a bank and coming to a credit union. The board recognizes that these are sources of potential harm to the credit union, but not actual disruptions or violations. So they really didn't give a clear framework of what they view as a substantial violation, but they did give a couple of examples of what they don't view as a violation. So credit union can use that in making their determination as to the facts of each situation and does it rise to this certain level. So that's the first bucket that a member's behavior could fall into. The second is a substantial or repeated disruption, including dangerous or abusive behavior. So the first question, obviously, with this one is what qualifies as dangerous or abusive behavior? So we look to the rule and the NCUA says that this type of behavior includes violence, intimidation, physical threats, harassment, or physical or verbal abuse of officials or employees of the credit union, members or agents of the credit union. So they do have some language in there describing what could qualify as dangerous or abusive behavior. And they give a few examples of this could be a dangerous or abusive behavior. And they also actually give some examples of some things that by themselves would not qualify as dangerous or abusive behavior. And they say things like expressions of frustration through elevated volume or tone. A member calls in and they're frustrated and they raise their voice. Expressions of and to sue the credit union. These things by themselves would not necessarily rise to that level, but it's very fact dependent. So the credit union has to look at a whole whole slew of factors when making this determination. And an important note on this piece is that there was some discussion in the proposed rule about whether or not this behavior should have to take place on credit union premises. And in the final rule, the board ultimately determined that this is not a requirement. The behavior does not have to take place on credit union premises. And they know that behavior can take place over social media, over the phone. Someone could even follow a 
credit union staff member to another location. There's a whole slew of factors where situations where behavior could be dangerous or abusive and not be at a branch. So I think that they were wise in crafting this rule so that conduct can be dangerous and abusive and meet that standard without having to be on site on a branch. I was just going to say that the last thing is the dangerous or abusive behavior does have to be tied to the credit union's operation. So if a credit union, say, found out that a member stole a car or did something at another bank or something like that, that would not be tied to the credit union's operation. So that by itself could not be dangerous or abusive behavior for the context of member expulsion. Got it. And on the not having to be at premises, I think you said this, but could you repeat it or clarify it for me? Was that something that they asked about in the proposed rule that they then finalized? Or was that something that maybe some people commented on? Or how did that go from proposed to final, if you know? Yeah, I believe it was in sort of written as is in the proposed rule, but it is something that they requested specific comment on. And all, I believe that was unanimous. Every commenter wrote in and said, agreed that this should not be required to take place on credit union premises. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, just you can say to me things in all those other venues. I mean, in the example of following somebody home, and it seems to me that the safety side of it really is the hub of the wheel, the thing that makes this a good rule, but it makes it, I mean, in the world we live in today, this is probably why Congress changed the act saying, hey, you need to make sure that credit union members and credit union staff can be safe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, every credit union person listening to this is probably thinking of at least one or two members in their mind that may exhibit this type of behavior. It's just the reality of the situation. When I was working for a credit union on day one, I met a member who had a reputation for coming in and exhibiting this type of behavior. And our hands were somewhat tied in the actions that we could take. So I think that's why I do believe this is a positive positive development for credit unions, for the safety of staff and other members. I think it's a good rule. And I think of it in a law enforcement perspective, you can getting a restraining order can help you and it can end up saving you and preventing some situation because there'll be people who will stay out of those situations. It's not the be all and it's not an absolute because things can still go awry, but it puts in place the options to try and best protect your staff. So I think is a great rule. Going back to uh, you, go ahead. Last thing I was going to touch on is the third bucket there is fraud or attempted fraud or conviction of other illegal conduct in relation to the credit union. So the important thing here, I think the thing of note is that the board in the proposed rule did solicit feedback on whether they should define fraud or attempted fraud, and they ultimately decided not to. They also recognize this is a very fact-dependent situation, and so they ultimately left that up to the discretion of the credit union. What the final rule does make clear is that that conviction or other illegal conduct, a conviction is not required for fraud or attempted fraud. So it's fraud, attempted fraud, or a conviction of other illegal conduct. There's no conviction required for fraud to be a grounds for a member expulsion. Got it. And I'm leaving the definitions to the credit unions and the facts that that are present. I think that's another good approach. NCUA doesn't define safety and soundness, but credit unions have to kind of live through what that might mean on a daily basis. And really, it's the facts that drive it. And individually, by not defining it, I think they've given the credit unions as much flexibility to decide if it makes sense that it rises to the level. Yeah, absolutely. These are very fact-dependent, a lot of gray area in these situations. So I agree with it, with your assessment there. 
And then going back to the substantial, the first one, the substantial or repeated violations. So if I heard that right, if it's substantial, then you have the legal threshold of it being substantial. But if it's less than substantial, it falls into the repeated violation. And that's when the pre-warning would have to go out and repeated means more than one, right? So that would be the second one would have to come within two years. But am I right in everything? It's like substantial is here and then everything else that might rise to the level falls into a repeated violation. That's right. Is this violation, is it substantial or it's non-substantial? And if it's substantial, then that's automatically grounds for this process. If it's non-substantial, then you have to send them a warning letter saying, hey, don't do this again. And then they have to exhibit that same behavior within two years. Then it becomes a repeated violation of the membership agreement. Got it. That's helpful. Yeah, I can almost visualize a flowchart in a policy that someone might have, right? Which gets me kind of to my next question. So what are the required notices that need to be sent out as it relates to this program, etc.? Yeah, so the first one is you have to give a notice of the expulsion policy to all of your members. So once a credit union has this policy in place, before exercising it on any member, every member has to be notified of the policy. So good news for us, credit union compliance officers, there is a standard disclosure uh, within the final rule. If you scroll all the way to the end of it, you'll see it there at the bottom. And they've laid out this is an optional standard disclosure, which is a form. It's a kind of a fill in the blank. There's some bracketed areas where you would kind of insert name of your credit union here. And it's a few paragraphs and it basically lays out the expulsion process. And this has to be sent to all members. In terms of how that sent, the NCUA ultimately landed on either mail or electronic delivery. So if your member has opted into receiving electronic communications, you can send it to them electronically. And if they haven't, you can send it to mail. I bring this up because in the proposed rule, the NCUA board noted that they were considering actually requiring both electronic and mail delivery for these notices. I think that speaks to how seriously the NCUA wants to make sure that everybody receives this and knows what the process is before they are subject to it. But they did ultimately steer away from that approach and you can send it to them in one format or the other. However, they've indicated to your credit union that they want to receive communications from you. I think you're probably right. Oh, you listened to what the board had to say. I listened to what the board had to say. And Chairman Harper, all three board members, but Chairman Harper in particular is the democratic process. You own, you're part owner. So to expel an owner has a very high bar. And you can tell that they're wanting it to be used judiciously. So probably the belts and suspenders of electronic and hard copy is probably where that came from. But the process works. Credit unions wrote in and explained why that might be burdensome and they backed off of that appropriately. So that's a yeah, that's uh, right. For- so the next notice is called the pending expulsion notice. So if a member exhibits a certain behavior or has a violation and the board is going to pursue this expulsion process, they have to be notified of that. So this is the letter that goes out to the member saying, hey, you're subject to expulsion here. And the biggest thing here is it has to tell them why. And the board did not feel it was appropriate to have a kind of a standard notice here. They thought that it was more appropriate for each credit union to tailor the notice to their specific member and the situation. But what they did do is lay out a number of things that should be in that notice. Things like relevant dates, sufficient detail for the member to understand the grounds for expulsion, why they are facing expulsion. It has to tell them that they have a right to request a hearing and how to do that. They should talk about the procedures of the hearing. And they should note in that notice that any complaints related to the member's expulsion should be submitted to the NCUA's Consumer Assistance Center. So there's a few elements in that final 
final rule of that you can read through and say, hey, these are the things that have to be in this notice that have to be in this letter. So the one thing that was also brought up in the rule is you have to be detailed in that letter. You don't have to use specific names. You know, the board recognized that these are often hostile or tense situation. And so they found it appropriate for the credit union to be able to use generic terms, such as you had this interaction with a teller or with a loan officer. You don't have to use specific names of staff members in the letter itself, which I think is a good policy for safety of credit union staff. So they have to be sufficiently on notice as to why they're looking at this. And it can't be enough. Can't just say you engaged in dangerous behavior or you violated the membership agreement. You have to tell them how they violated the membership agreement. You have to tell them what behavior they engaged in was deemed dangerous or abusive. So the final rule is very clear about the need for some detail in this regard. And last thing on that is just like the previous notice can be provided either electronically or by mail. However, the member has indicated they want to receive communications. And then the last notice, the required notice, is the notice of expulsion. So if they get the notice of pending expulsion, maybe they request a hearing. And then afterwards, the notice of expulsion. This is the letter that tells them that they've been expelled. This is after the vote of the board of directors. So this is another one where the rule states a lot of things that should be in this notice. It should state the reason for the member's expulsion. If there was a hearing and they made some statements, they should provide a response to the member's statements. It should have information about about how your accounts are going to be wrapped up. If there's funds that are going to be applied to an existing loan or anything like that, that should be addressed in this letter as well. And finally, it should state that the member has an opportunity to request reinstatement. We're going to go over that in a little bit, but that's sort of the next part of the process. So in all cases, there's basically three required notices. You've got your notice of the expulsion policy to all members. If you've got a pending expulsion notice, the letter saying the board's considering expelling you, and the notice of expulsion, the letter that tells them that they have been expelled. So those are required in all cases. And like we talked about before, there's a fourth notice that's required in some cases, that warning letter, that written notice of non-substantial violations of the membership agreement. Again, not required in all cases. So in all cases, you're looking at three notices and in some cases, four. Got it. That's a good explanation. Now, and one of the things you mentioned there that I also picked up on in the board presentation is you can, there was a question about appeal rights and there was a statement about you cannot appeal it. So if they can complain to NCUA about what happened, but they cannot appeal it to NCUA, meaning that NCUA cannot look at it and go as a regulatory body, we disagree with what the credit union did and you need to make this person a member. However, they can complain to NCUA saying that they thought they were being handled misappropriately and then putting my NCUA hat on. The ridiculous example makes the best example sometimes. You have, I'll call it a rogue mean federal credit union, right? And that's the name of the credit union and they're purging members left and right. And NCUA gets five or 10 complaints about that. Maybe that's a scenario where NCUA would take some action against the credit union, but it's not an official appeal right. And they laid out what the appeal rights were in the rule. But I wanted to kind of clarify that side of they can complain, but not appeal to NCUA. Any thoughts you want to add to that comment? Yeah, I would agree with that. There is no formal right of appeal, but they can complain to NCUA. And like you said, NCUA is not going to look at this one complaint comes in and tell the credit union that they have to reverse their decision. I think what they're going to be looking at is the credit union using this to maybe expel a class of members instead exactly. of individual members. And NCUA is very clear in the final rule that this is to be used in a case-by-case basis on individual members, not to expel a class of members. So the NCO would be looking at that, I think. In part of these complaints. 
Yeah, exactly. I'll make an editorial comment that I made in my solo podcast on this topic that one thing that jumped out to me was the staff member said into a can look at this during an exam and the into a board chairman said into a will look at this during the exam, which in my mind goes back to how important Todd Harper, the chairman, believes this the right ownership is. And made me chuckle because I remember being in situations where my phone would immediately ring from a regional director calling me saying, hey, I haven't seen the memo that says this is a new policy under and how does it fit into large credit unions? How does it fit into small credit unions? And it would always end with, and do my te- does my staff get an extra hour to do this at every exam? So I'm guessing that some of those conversations may have happened or may be about to happen at NCUA. But the chairman has the ability to heavily influence exam procedures and policies. So it'll be curious to see what credit unions start to see the questions that might be asked. I'll even go so far as to say, and I didn't say this last time, is in the priority letter to credit unions that comes out in January. At the end, they have some statements they make. There might be a reference to this under consumer compliance that, hey, we could be looking at this gap gathering data, kind of like they did on overdrafts. We're taking a look at it. We may do some policies on it, depending on what we find. It's quite possible it might get dropped into a letter to credit unions coming up here. So, All right. Well, so let's talk about the hearing and things like that. What are the procedures for the hearing, for the membership, the member vote, and the request for reinstatement if the member makes such a request? Yeah, so we've gotten to this point, right? We sent out the notice of expulsion policy to all of our members. We've sent a pending expulsion notice and they've requested a hearing. So the first question is the format of the hearing. Does it have to be in person? Can it be over video, phone, written submissions? How does that work? The NCUA solicited some comments on this as part of the proposed rule to final rule process. And everyone expressed concern with the idea of an in-person hearing being required. And you can imagine why in a case of a dangerous or abusive member requiring that an in-person hearing with a volunteer board of directors, not a great situation. And so the NCUA agreed. They said the credit union can choose to have this be either in-person or on video conference. If a member is not able to do a video conference, the credit union can offer telephonic hearing. The member also has the option if they want to be heard, but don't necessarily want to speak on their behalf, they can do a written submission to the credit union. So there's kind of four methods. And what the NCAA made clear is that in-person and video conference are kind of the two primary methods. The credit union should be doing one of those two. But for feasibility or another reason, those don't work. There's two sort of backup methods, and that's telephone and written submissions. So the credit union has some discretion in terms of the format of the hearing, but it should be either in-person or video conference unless the situation dictates otherwise. Right. I guess the situation dictating otherwise could be a member who says, you could have a credit union say, yeah, we'll do it in person. But the person says, I'm out of town. Can I do it on the phone? Right. Or I want to do it in writing, which again, leaving the flexibilities there, but that might be some examples of why that would make sense. Yeah, absolutely. So then we get to the structure of the hearing itself. Now, in the final rule, the NCUA board didn't really give a whole lot of guidance on the structure of the hearing. They leave this a lot up to the discretion of the credit union. They said, we want these credit unions to have flexibility to conduct these hearings as they deem appropriate. So there's not like standard procedures in terms of things like who gets to testify, in what order, time limits, who can ask questions. Uh, that's sort of all up to the credit union. From the NCUA's perspective, the most 
important thing for them was that this is to be a fair process with appropriate opportunity to be heard. So they didn't get into the weeds of the hearing procedures itself. What they did note is that if you have in your parliamentary procedures that your bylaws say you have to conduct your annual meeting by, those do not apply to these hearings. So you don't have to have these meetings conform with Robert's Rules of Order or whatever is prescribed in your bylaws. Got it. And so one interesting question that I thought was came up in the proposed rule and rule process was, can subsequent conduct be considered? So say, for example, I send a member a letter and saying, hey, you've had attempted fraud and that's subject to expulsion. And we send them a letter saying that they're, we're going to have this hearing for their attempted fraud. And in the meantime, before that hearing, they exhibit dangerous or abusive behavior. The question was, can that subsequent conduct be considered as part of this hearing? The answer from NCUA was no. So if it's, they want the member to be able to have the opportunity to defend themselves, to explain their situation. And so basically, if it's not in the notice, then it can't be part of that hearing if it's completely separate behavior. So that's an important thing to note. I think uh, you could definitely see that situation where a member gets a letter that they're being expelled and maybe has some dangerous or abusive behavior. So the ruling from the NCUA in the final rule was that the behavior, if it's different behavior, then it can't be part of that hearing. Yeah, that makes sense. That's kind of like in a personnel action, right? You're we're taking these personnel actions for these reasons, and then something more egregious happens. In the second letter, you start addressing those things. You can complicate in that scenario the due process you're giving to the employee that you're taking these actions against if you kind of weave in a new fact pattern. So that, yeah, that yeah. makes perfect sense. Now, I will note on that just a slight clarification is that if it's the same behavior, that can be considered. So if they're being okay. expelled for dangerous or abusive behavior and they continue their dangerous or abusive behavior in that subsequent period that can be addressed during the hearing. So you threatened to do A, B, and C bodily harm to a teller, and then two weeks later, you did the same exact thing to the yeah. same exact teller in the same exact building. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. So we've had a fair hearing. The member has a chance to be heard, and the board then has to take a vote. The board of directors has to take a vote on the expulsion. So on the timing, the NCUA's final rule says this has to be held in a timely manner, but it's within 30 days of the hearing. So it doesn't have to happen right that minute in front of the member but you can't wait three months to have this vote. So it should be held pretty soon after that hearing. 30 days is the timing that is represented there. And the expulsion requires a two-thirds vote of a quorum of the board of directors. So however many board members you have there, it's a two-thirds vote required to expel the member. And then if they do vote, then the member, the credit union would prepare and send the notice of expulsion. And as I noted before, that notice of expulsion should respond to any arguments made by the member during their hearing. And like we talked about before, there are no formal appeal rights. So the board's vote is final on this. However, what the member can do is request a reinstatement of membership. So say some time goes by and they member writes in and they say, I'd like to request for my membership to be reinstated. It's not an appeal of the decision. It's kind of asking for a second look to be able to say reinstated as a member. And so the couple important things from this from the final rule is that the NCUA said that a member is only entitled to one request for a reinstatement. They were considering saying, hey, can you request one every every 12 months or 18 months or things like that. And they ultimately came down on you get one shot at it. So after that first one comes in, in theory, the member could continue to request reinstatement, but there's no obligation of the credit union to hold a vote to consider that reinstatement. So you get one shot at it. 
And it would be a vote of the board who would have to decide that could not be delegated. Do I have that right? Yeah. So there's actually three options here. So the board can vote can be a vote done by the membership at a special meeting. Or if the request for reinstatement comes in within 90 days of the credit union's annual meeting, it can be a vote of the membership at the annual meeting. So uh, I think most credit unions would probably opt to do this with the board of directors, but there are a couple options here. So you can call a special meeting of your membership to consider this, or if you're close to your annual meeting, you you can do it as part of that. Um, So there's three ways that that can be done. I'm going to predict the board will do 100% of those. <laughs> I think you're accurate on that. Well, the last thing on that is on the vote is to reinstate would require a majority vote of the quorum of the board. So it is two thirds vote to expel the member, but only a majority is required to reinstate them. Oh, I like that. That's clever and consistent with ownership rights. Yeah. And the last thing on reinstatement is there's no prescribed minimum time or maximum time. So the member does not have to wait a certain amount of time before requesting reinstatement. And there's no maximum time. They could come back 20 years later and request to be reinstatement. There's no statute of limitations or anything like that. That's a good rule. That's a good structure as well. Did the rule contemplate, I'm guessing the answer is no to this, but let's say I get expelled and I'm in the credit unions in Florida, I'm expelled, I move somewhere else, I end up coming back 15 years later and I come back in and I apply to be a member. I don't ask for reinstatement. I just walk in and say, hey, here's my driver's license. I live in Tampa. Your field of membership is Tampa. I'd like to become a member of the credit union. And the credit union takes me in without the proper application been done on my part. And then a year later, two years later, three years later, internal audit department goes, hey, you know what? Mark Trichel was expelled and somehow he got back in here. Did they describe what might happen in that scenario? You know, they did not cover anything like that. What they did say is that they did address the record keeping requirements that you do have to keep these records for six years. So in your situation, it's theoretically possible that any records of this could be long gone. I think that'd be an interesting situation. I'm not sure how a credit union would handle that. The NCAA did not address anything like that in the final rule, but I wouldn't put it past that happening. It's going to happen more than a reapplication will happen now that I'm thinking about it. That's my prediction. But probably what NCUA would say, maybe what NCUA would say is you need to expel them again and go through the whole process. Because Youth Credit Union, you screwed up. You're the gatekeeper. You let them in and you can't just close the account without. But maybe that's a good legal opinion that I can ask NCUA for. So the first thing that came to mind was the membership agreement. So Credit Union would probably be scouring their membership agreement to see if there's any kind of terms that was violated by the member not disclosing that they had been previously expelled. And that's good. Not to be a substantial violation of the membership agreement that could be grounds for re-expulsion. Very good. I like that. (laughs) So let's see. So if a credit union, I think there'd be a lot of credit unions that are going to want to do this because like you said, everybody can think of that scenario where the teller was threatened or the board member was threatened or the CEO was followed home. Pick a scenario. Most credit unions have probably dealt with it. So there's going to be a lot of activity, I would think, in this. So if a credit union wants to do this, what would they need to do first as far as the bylaws, policies, getting it approved by their board? etc. How would you recommend a credit proceed if they like what they see here? Yeah, great question. So the first is that this final rule is actually an amendment to the standard bylaws. So in the bylaws right now, there exists 
Article 14, expulsion and withdrawal. And it lays out two ways in which a member can be expelled currently. And basically the main way right now is through calling a special meeting of the membership and having them vote. So everything we're talking about today adds to that Article 14, and it adds this third method. So the first thing that a credit union should do would be looking at updating their bylaws to include this new language. This is a good practice anytime there's any kind of bylaw amendment. Most credit unions want to keep their bylaws consistent with the standard version as it's being updated. So the first thing that they should look into is how to update their bylaws to include this new language. And then the second thing I would recommend is look at it from a policies and procedures standpoint. So everything we've talked about today, a lot of common themes that we've heard from section to section is the NCUA board gave federal credit unions a lot of discretion as to how to handle these situations. And so the credit union is going to want to have appropriate policies and procedures saying, hey, this is how we do this here. This is what our hearings are going to look like, how we conduct them. This is what our notices are going to say. This is the committee of people who is going to make this determination. Does the member's behavior qualify for expulsion? All those actual procedure standpoints you want to have well documented. Because Mark, like you said earlier, that one word change in the NCUA board meeting from Chairman Harper saying that the NCUA will be looking at this. You want to make sure you're really buttoned up from a policies and procedures standpoint. Not just for your examiners, but in case the member files an NCUA complaint. The final rule also addresses that they can exercise a private right of action, taking legal action against the credit union. So you want to make sure you're really, your documentation is consistent that it's going to treat everybody fairly. And so those are the first two things that I would do is the bylaw amendment and then look at your policies and procedures. Credit unions may already have a policy for something like a limitation of services policy. You want to make sure that any new policies are consistent with that and that it works as sort of the whole package where say, okay, this is what we do to limit services if someone writes their pin on the back of the debit card or anything like that. And then when it rises to a certain level, we now move over here to this member expulsion policy. So just make making sure that your policies and procedures are consistent with anything that you might already have. Those would be the definite first two things that I would do. Very good. And the more I talk to you about this rule, the more I like this rule. I think NCUA did a really good job on doing this, and you've done a better job explaining it to me and liked it when I first heard it, but kind of the devil's in the details. You know the details, and I'm liking it even more now. So I'm going to give NCUA an A, and I'm going to give you an A plus for being (laughs) able to explain how well NCUA kind of structured this. Gives credit unions a lot of opportunities for a much-needed authority, in my opinion. And is there a question that perhaps I should have asked you that I did not ask you today that you'd like to talk about here as we wrap up? No, I don't think so. I think we covered it really well. Last thing that I thought was missing that I was surprised was on the request for reinstatement, the board did not talk about how that needs to be communicated to the member. They covered every other notice that was required, every communication from start to finish, and then kind of left that out at the end. So a letter explaining the result of the reinstatement vote is how it would go there. I think we covered it pretty well from start to finish here. It's a very complicated rule. There's a lot of notices required, and that's all the more important reason for credit used to have good policies and procedures on this. Well, you just remind, I love quotes, and you just reminded me of one of my favorites. Confucius said that it's a simple task to make things complex and a complex task to make them simple. 
But you did that. You made this simple in my mind. You made it the way you walked through it, made it simple. I think this is going to be very valuable for credit unions. So JT, I want to thank you. But first, before I do that, if someone is listening and they're either in Virginia or thinking about traveling to Virginia and they want to chat with you about this across the country, how would someone reach you if they had a question relative to this? Yeah, thanks, Mark. First of all, everyone should come to Virginia. It's a great state. So vacuole.org, that's V-A, like Virginia, C-U-L, like Credit Union League, .org is the league's website. You can reach me by email at jblau at vacuole.org. That's J-B-L-A-U at vacuole.org. And then finally, on vacuole.org, we actually have a compliance blog. It's called the regular blog. And we're doing a four-part breakdown of this member expulsion rule. A lot of things we talked about today. If you want to see it kind of broken down, um, that's a great resource for us as well. You can find that on our website. Fantastic. JT, I really want to thank you for reaching out and being available today to to explain this rule so well. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mark. Really enjoyed our conversation. You got it. And listeners, I want to thank you for listening. I hope you'll listen again soon. This is Mark Treichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 